can you vote with your feet? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ilya Solman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Ilya Soman. Ilya is professor of law at George Mason University. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of popular political participation and its implications for constitutional democracy. His work has appeared in numerous scholarly journals, including Stanford Law Review and others. He has also published articles in a variety of popular press outlets, including the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, just to name a couple. And of course, he's the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, and The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain. And of course, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration and Political Freedom, which is coming out on May 22nd. It is also the book that will form the basis of a lot of our discussion today. Ilya, Welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you very much for having me. So Ilya, in each of our episodes, we base it on a question and we go wherever the answers lead us. Today, our question is, can you vote with your feet? But before we get into that, let's start a few steps before that. Pardon the terrible pun. What do you mean by someone who votes with their feet? It can mean several different things, but the basic idea is that you make a choice about where to live. Uh, at least in part based on uh, whether you like the government policies there or not, or how you feel about them compared to the ones where you are. Uh, but I would add also that you can vote with your feet sometimes in the private sector as well. Uh, for instance, if you choose to attend a private school, if you choose to buy a product from one company rather than another, if you choose to join a particular church or civil society organization. Uh, so I think the core idea of voting with your feet uh, is that you make choices about issues which are also sometimes, even if not always, under the control of government. But unlike at the ballot box where your vote is usually just one of many millions or many thousands, when you vote with your feet, you make a choice that's individually decisive. That is, when you decide what state or what in Canada, what province you're going to live in, uh, that choice actually determines where you're going to be. Uh, whereas when you vote in an election, the chance that your one vote will change the outcome is usually just one chance in many millions. So so at a high level in the book, you and you already touched on it, so we'll drill a little deeper. You do talk about how foot voting ultimately outperforms ballot box voting. Uh, another example example, you, and again, we're not going to read the whole book here if people want it. I, I definitely recommend that that they go and purchase it and, and re read in depth the arguments here. There's no way we can cover it all here. But one of the things you do touch on in the book in terms of how foot voting outperforms ballot box voting is meaningful and informed choice. Uh, I'll, I'll just toss it to you so you can get into this. This is sort of like the idea that um, in a nutshell, uh, you know, people are more concerned, for example, with the TV they're going to buy than who they're voting for in a ballot box to kick us off. So why don't you expand on that a little bit and explain how that sort of principle makes foot voting ultimately more effective than ballot box voting? So I mentioned earlier how when you vote with your feet, uh, your choice has a much higher chance of actually making a difference than when you vote at the ballot box. And that also affects your incentive to become informed about the issues at stake. Uh, if you're like most people, you probably spent more time and effort uh, acquiring information and thinking about it last time you bought a car or a TV set or a smartphone uh, than the last time you decided who to vote for in any election, whether national or regional or in Canada, provincial or what have you. Uh, I think the reason for that is not that 
your TV set is more important than who runs the government or that the TV set deals with more complicated issues. It's that when you bought the TV set, you knew that uh, the one you picked is the one that will actually show up in your living room. <laughs> Whereas when you turn on the TV uh, and you see in the U.S., you have the pain of seeing our current president in Canada. Perhaps you might see the prime minister. Your chance of being able to determine who that person is uh, is many millions to one. And therefore, quite naturally, most people don't spend a lot of time uh, considering those choices, acquiring relevant information and so forth. And data from the US, Canada, and many other countries shows that in fact, most voters know very little about political issues. They don't understand such basic things as what the national government spends its money on, which officials are responsible for which issues. Uh, a recent poll in the US Actually, several recent polls shows that only about 25 to 35 percent of the public can even name the three branches of the federal government, the executive, the legislative and the judicial. And there is many more uh, examples like that of evidence of political ignorance, whereas on the other hand, people do on the whole at least become better informed uh, than that when they vote with their feet. I guess another small aspect of this as well is that some people feel that, and again, I mean, of course, the the state and the government does affect your life every day in many different ways. But when it comes to a car or a TV, I guess the effect just simply becomes more apparent because, as you said, you're dealing with it on a on a direct day to day basis. If your TV doesn't work, you're upset. If your car falls apart under you, you're upset. Although the state is in our lives every day, I guess some people don't feel whether this is right or wrong that it directly affects them every day. So maybe that's also another sort of cause of their their detachment or disinterest sometimes in that subject. Possibly, but I think most people do recognize that the government does affect them every day, at least in some significant ways. Obviously, we're currently living through the coronavirus pandemic where right. whether the government screws up or not is a matter of life and death. But even in ordinary times, the level of taxes, the level of regulation housing policy and so forth, that does affect you every day. Uh, in some cases, because of the political ignorance that I mentioned, people often don't realize the effects that it has. Uh, so we have in both the US and Canada, there are many major cities, very high housing costs, in part because of zoning restrictions, which make it very difficult to build new housing. And many people just simply don't realize that they certainly realize they're paying a lot for rent, or uh, that sometimes they can't even live in a neighborhood they want to live in because it's too expensive, but they may not realize that the government is uh, a major contributing factor in that. Uh, however, uh, be it as it may, I do not think that the reason why there's so much political ignorance is that people just don't realize that the government has an effect on their lives. Some types of effects they don't realize, but there are many which are relatively obvious. I mentioned a few a moment ago. So, so one objection, and your book touches on this as well, but that people you know, sort of throw out to, to someone like you when you're talking about foot voting is, uh, especially as since it's more effective than ballot box voting, is they say, well, look, you know, political involvement and, and democratic involvement, it isn't just the ballot box. You know, ballot box voting in a way can go beyond the ballot box, right? Like this is some an objection that people would, would, would constantly throw at you. But again, I, I guess you would turn around and talk about that regardless, even if you get more involved politically, you still have more of a chance of affecting things, especially your own life with foot voting. It's, it still must wash out as superior. It's certainly true that uh, ballot box voting in the narrow sense is not the only way that you can try to affect government policy. You can also lobby, engage in political activism, protest, 
uh, write articles and op-eds and so forth. Uh, but there are a couple problems with that. One is probably only a minority of the population really has a meaningful opportunity to do these other things. In the U.S., the data show maybe only 25% or so of the public participates in politics beyond voting in any way at all, even to the extent of you know just writing a letter to your representative in a legislature or something. Uh, but also, let's say we somehow equalize that and everybody could participate in that in an, to an equal extent, you would still have the problem uh, that your chance of changing outcomes is, is extremely small. Uh, because currently, the reason why those people who do engage in activism or in op-ed writing or lobbying the government, the reason why they have more influence uh, than other people, the reason why they can have some impact is because they do have much more influence than the average voter does. Uh, whereas if we somehow equalize that and enable anybody to lobby with equal effectiveness uh, and the like, then uh, lobbying or whatever other activity it is that you equalized uh, would have the same extremely low probability of making a difference as uh, uh, ballot box voting does. So there's two problems with these kinds of mechanisms of political participation beyond voting. One is that only a minority of the population has meaningful access to them. The other is that if we did somehow equalize the access, then we'd be right back into the same problem as we have with ballot box voting, which is that the chance of any one person making a difference would be extraordinarily small. Just a few more general points before we get into some 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 specifics. Like, for instance, I do want to talk about the three types of foot voting and all that. But before we get there, some would argue, and your book does touch on this, that foot voting isn't ultimately political, but you, but you object to this. Uh, you, you get into the, into in your book how foot voting is often tied to political effects anyway. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to unmarry these things. Can you go a little bit into that? Some critics of foot voting, so it's not really a political choice. Most of the time, if you move in the U.S. from one state to another and Canada from one province to another, it's for a job or because uh, there's lower cost housing in one area compared to another. And similarly with international migration, people move often for economic opportunities rather than because uh, of political ideology or the like. Uh, and I would respond to this in, in a couple of ways. One is particularly with international migration, but also even with internal migration, often people do in fact move specifically because of government policies. The US and Canada are populated by or were populated by millions of people who left their home countries in considerable part because the rulers there were oppressive or corrupt or otherwise had awful policies and uh, the migrants you know, were well aware of that. Second, even when your immediate motive is actually economic, like, you know, you might say, I don't care about the difference between California versus some other state. All I care about is which one offers me better job opportunities uh, or lower cost housing still, but housing job opportunities and other so-called economic effects are often in large part produced by government policy. Uh, government has an effect on the job market. It has an effect, uh, obviously, on the availability of housing, on taxation, and so forth. So what seems like an economic effect is often, at least in part, a political one. If you want to say that nothing that's economically motivated is meaningfully political, then you would also have to discount a lot of ballot box voting, uh, because a lot of ballot box voting uh, lots of data show uh, is determined by the recent state of the economy. If the economy seems to be doing well, incumbents will usually be reelected. If it seems to be doing badly, they'll usually be defeated. So uh, if you think that's a meaningful political choice, then uh, choosing to vote with your feet 
uh, for economic reasons that are influenced by government policy is just as much a political choice. And on that exact note, you asked the question in the book if foot voting and ballot box uh, voting are complements or substitutes. And, and the answer from you, to, to quote you, back to you, you say, concluding that foot voting is vital to political freedom and often a better mechanism of achieving it than ballot box voting does not amount to co- to a call for the abolition of democracy. And then you also follow up on that a little bit later and and ultimately say that private sector voting isn't just something that exists alongside or intertwined with public sector voting, if you will. But as a matter of fact, what you do in the private sphere with foot voting augments sort of what happens on the political sphere as well. So it's not that they just exist together, but in fact, they play off each other, which I find very interesting. Yes. Uh, so let me take the first question first, that some people who are more radical libertarians than I am, or alternatively people who advocate authoritarianism, they say, well, if ballot box voting has all these problems, why not abolish it entirely? Why not have some system of anarchy or some system of government which doesn't require democracy? Uh, I don't uh, go that far in either of those directions. I do accept the evidence that democracy outperforms dictatorship and oligarchy and these other forms of government. That's more uh, evidence of how awful those alternatives are than necessarily evidence of how great democracy is, but I think that evidence is pretty strong. Second, I do think there can be some issues which uh, are just too difficult to address through foot voting, uh, or and also uh, you, you have to have governmental structures in the first place to be able to choose uh, foot voting options. So what I advocate is not the abolition of democracy, but rather First of all, the decentralization of power in many countries relative to where it is now so that it's easier for people to vote with their feet. The more decentralized things are, the lower the moving costs of moving to another jurisdiction. And second, breaking down barriers to freedom of movement uh, such that it's easier for people to vote with their feet, both domestically, but also internationally through international migration. Uh, And I would note that uh, as you touched on the last part of your question, uh, that uh, effective opportunities for foot voting can also improve the quality of ballot box voting in democratic institutions. Uh, it can give democratic governments incentives to improve their policies, lest they lose foot voters to other jurisdictions or uh, and lose investment in business and the like. Uh, and also, uh, there's evidence that uh, f- the quality of democratic government improves uh, with increased wealth uh, and uh, foot voting enables people to increase wealth by moving to places where they're going to be more productive and where there are more opportunities for them. Uh, and finally, to the extent that foot voting enables us to, and to some degree at least, limit the scope of issues which are on the government agenda, uh, that at the margin diminishes the problem of political ignorance because there's not as many political issues for uh, voters to spread their attention over, uh, given that, as I noted before, most voters are going to pay only relatively modest amounts of attention to politics. If that attention is spread over fewer issues, uh, then uh, it will uh, it, it'll be more effective in uh, imposing accountability on government. So, so I think all of this so far has provided a great backdrop and uh, multiple high-level points for us to drill deeper into. And before we do that, let's get into the three types of foot voting now. So I basically just toss them over to you, and I have some additional notes as we go along. But, but, but ultimately, I'd like you to kind of explain them a bit and, and some of the benefits, or even I also throw some examples our way. Sure. So the first type of foot voting is foot voting between jurisdictions in a federal system. This is the kind of foot voting that people most think about when they hear about the concept, which is 
you live in a federal system like the U.S. or Canada and you decide which state or province to live in uh, based in part on which government policies you like or the effects of those policies on employment, housing, uh, and so forth. Uh, and uh, there are lots and lots of uh, historical examples of this. In the U.S., for instance, a famous one is uh, the movement of African-Americans from the South to the North, uh, where at that time, and sometimes and even today, Northern states on the whole were less racially discriminatory than Southern ones uh, and also offered more economic opportunities in part as a result of that. Uh, another famous example, more recent, is the migration of many Americans to the Sun Belt, where uh, in addition to having better weather from the standpoint of some people, uh, those states also offered more economic opportunity and lower housing costs in recent years. Uh, obviously, if you look at Canadian history, there's migration of people to the Western provinces as those provinces began to grow and offer more opportunities, you know, like Alberta, British Columbia, uh, and so on. Uh, so uh, the benefits are uh, that people are able to move to places where they like the policies better. Uh, but as a result, also often the places where they can be more productive uh, and freer. Uh, and also for many minority groups, this kind of foot voting has historically been a way of escaping oppression and moving to more tolerant jurisdictions. I mentioned African-Americans, but there are also examples with gays and lesbians, uh, with other uh, minority groups of various types. In the book, I mentioned how in the 19th century in the U.S., uh, often Western states offered more rights to women uh, than Eastern states did uh, because they wanted to attract more women to their location, given that they had at first a very severe imbalance of many more men than women. So they wanted more women for, if only because the men wanted more marriage opportunities. Uh, and, you know, many women took advantage of that and uh, moved to places where they were at least relatively less uh, oppressed. Uh, so uh, there are many big advantages to uh, foot voting within countries uh, in federal systems. I should mention it applies not just to regional governments, but also to local governments as well. Uh, and, and that also can be very important. One quick thing before we move on to the other types of foot voting. with And an objection someone might immediately throw at you when they hear this is, is to say, basically, that's nice in, quote, theory. But something like, for instance, moving costs would be very prohibitive to people who would say, yes, I'd like to move to X city as opposed to Y city, but but I simply can't move. We can get into a few more details later in our discussion. But 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 on face value, when someone throws that your, your way, what do you say to that? Yeah, the objection is sometimes made. Foot voting is just for the wealthy. You have to be able to afford to move. Historically, however, it is actually the poor and the disadvantaged who are the biggest beneficiaries of foot voting, uh, they can often benefit the most from differences between jurisdictions. Uh, they have the most to gain. And also, they're much less likely to have valuable fixed assets that can't be moved, like property and land, for example. If you're a big landowner, you're probably not poor to begin with. I also in the book discuss a variety of ways in which the cost of moving can be reduced, because I do think in recent years in the U.S., and to a certain degree, I think in Canada and Europe as well, uh, we have adopted some policies which have the unfortunate side effect of increasing moving costs, uh, particularly for the poor. Uh, and uh, we can pare back those policies and make foot voting uh, more available to people. All right. And we might get back to that later. But moving along here, let's talk about foot voting through international migration. When I read the book, one thing I got, and you just Tell, tell me if I'm wrong or if you want to take it a different way. But it seems to me one of the main things I grabbed was that there's there's two big tents of discussion when it comes to foot voting through international migration. There's sort of a, a case for freedom and individual liberty on principle 
But then, of course, there's also a case for the positive consequences of this. So I'm not sure if you wanted to tackle it that way or start with an overview first, but I just want to throw my takeaway in there as well, too, because that, that was very striking to me as I read the book. Yeah, so uh, there's a large literature on international migration, and there's also a large literature on domestic internal foot voting, uh, but very little that brings the, uh, the two together, even though, as I argue in this book at some length, the two actually have fundamental similarities and both are exercises of political freedom. Uh, in the case of international migration, the differences between jurisdictions are often much larger than anything you find within Canada or within the U.S. with any one particular federal system. The difference between Canada and Mexico or the U.S. and Mexico is vastly greater than the difference between the worst American state and, and the best one, whoever you define those terms. And therefore, the potential gains to empowering people to vote with their feet across international boundaries are in many cases much larger than uh, the gains from internal foot voting. They're larger in terms of uh, the intrinsic liberty uh, and human rights that people get. It's considered a difference between living in the U.S. versus living in Cuba or living in Venezuela or some other oppressive regime. Uh, but they're also larger in terms of the additional economic opportunity that people get uh, if a Mexican or a Salvadoran moved to the U.S., almost right away they become two or three times more productive than they would be in their home countries uh, because the U.S. economy and um, political system in general is more productive, at least when it's not in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and that doesn't even take account of opportunities to improve your skills, which, of course, are also often greater. Uh, so there's both an intrinsic case for freedom of movement across international boundaries that it's fundamentally an element of liberty, just like internal foot voting is. The arguments for both are actually very similar. But there's also what you might call a consequentialist case in that it makes people vastly more productive and vastly better off, uh, not just in a narrowly economic sense, but in many other ways as well that, uh, you know, think of people fleeing oppressive regimes, think of women fleeing patriarchal societies, think of oppressed minorities, religious and ethnic fleeing places where uh, they're repressed uh, and so forth. Right. And I would add most of the arguments against international migration that are usually made or against uh, liberalizing it are ones that if taken seriously and applied consistently could also uh, apply against internal freedom of movement as well. Right. Uh, and I discussed that in a book at some length. And, and of course, this episode isn't about COVID-19 specifically, but maybe a quick second on uh, how you think we can reconcile everything we just talked about with the, the COVID scare and crisis. Obviously, for health reasons, the government, uh, many governments have basically started to limit um, even you know, travel between states to some degree, but, but mostly travel between countries and, and things like that. Um, obviously, that may or may not be the right way to go. But but beyond that, um, when we're dealing with the aftermath of this sort of uh, scare, what do you say to people who say that, you know, th this COVID scare is ultimately an example of why the, the, lots of movement between borders, for instance, is actually a negative thing, right? There's there's a lot of people now saying that, that this is a warning sign to limit uh, whether it just be travel or full foot voting through international migration. What, what would you say to that? I would say a couple of things. One is you can make the same argument for limiting internal foot voting in that uh, a person can uh, bring a contagious disease from one province to another or one state to another just as easily as uh, across international boundaries. The second thing is that you, know, you can say there is a kernel of truth to this argument in that if 
population A is hermetically sealed from population B, then there's no chance of carrying an infection from one to the other. But as soon as you have not just migration, but even tourism or business and the like, uh, you have the risk of uh, diseases being brought from one place to another. Uh, pandemics devastated the world uh, in the ancient world or during the Black Death in the 14th century, despite the fact that at that time, most of the population consisted of peasants or serfs who were forbidden and in practice really couldn't move more than a few miles away from where they were born. Uh, so uh, in the long run, especially, we need to combat pandemics and, and contagious disease generally in ways other than restricting freedom of movement. I would add also that in the long run, migration restrictions actually increase our health risks in uh, two important ways. Uh, one is that uh, one of the best established facts in public health is that on the whole, wealthier societies uh, have better public health and longer life expectancy in the white than poorer ones. And freedom of movement increases wealth enormously by enabling people to move to places where they're more productive. It increases the wealth of natives as well because they get the extra productivity that the migrants engage in. The second thing is that uh, if you have relatively free migration, then where necessary, you can impose temporary constraints like temporary quarantines and the like. Uh, and uh, for instance, a number of countries like South Korea that have handled COVID relatively well, instead of shutting down international freedom of movement, they say, if you enter, you must go into quarantine for 14 days uh, until it's clear that you don't have the COVID. Uh, and that may be a showstopper for somebody who's like a tourist and wants to tour the country for a few days or is going on a short business trip. For somebody who's a long-term migrant, uh, they might be very willing in most cases to do the 14-day quarantine because it's only a small uh, price to pay for living in a freer and more productive society. Whereas on the other hand, if you have severe migration restrictions, that actually incentivizes illegal border crossing where people hide from the authorities and therefore are more likely actually to be to attempt to cross the border uh, without uh, getting tested uh, and you know, without uh, these sorts of precautions. So I'm not a complete absolutist about freedom of movement or any kind of freedom for that matter. A sufficiently great evil can justify restricting freedom of movement if A, it really is that great, and B, the restriction is the only way to prevent it. But on the whole, uh, freedom of restricting freedom of movement is not the right long-term way to preclude the spread of contagious disease. And uh, it actually may increase our health risks uh, rather than diminish them. Finally, our third type of foot voting, foot voting in the private sector. And in the book, you say that ultimately there, there's two prongs to this discussion. On the one hand, what goods we would purchase on the market, that's one thing, how, how we spend our money and, and go about things like that. And on the other hand, what civil society organizations we, we would like to join? Sure. Uh, those are a couple of examples, but there are potentially other ones as well uh, that uh, in, in many countries, including the US and Canada, there are possibilities of getting through the private sector, various goods and services you could otherwise get through government. For instance, you can use uh, private schools as opposed to public schools. Uh, there are also both in the US and uh, Canada and elsewhere, numerous private planned communities. Uh, almost 70 million Americans now live in private planned communities, I think many Canadians as well. Uh, and those often provide services which are similar uh, to those that are traditionally provided by local governments. Uh, and 
there are a couple of advantages to private sector foot voting over that in the public sector. One is the moving costs often are far lower. Uh, often in the private sector, you can actually vote with your feet without physically having to move much at all. Uh, second, there's often a wider range of options. I mentioned before, we have 70 million Americans living in private planned communities. In a given geographic area, you can often have many more private planned communities than local or regional governments. Uh, and as a result of this wider range of choice, uh, we can more easily uh, have choices to fit a, you know, a wider range of preferences uh, as well. Uh, you're much less limited to, say, just the options provided by a Democratic-controlled jurisdiction or Republican one. I know in Canada you have somewhat more active political parties uh, than in the U.S., but even so, it's a relatively limited uh, number, uh, and it's not as wide a diversity as you can get uh, right. through private sector foot voting. So it's not my view that private sector foot voting can completely displace the public sector type, but there are ways uh, that already is very useful, and we can increase opportunities for it uh, in various ways I describe in more detail in the book. And that's actually an excellent place to take our break. We are at that time. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Tasks. I'm speaking with Elias Soman today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Lawrence Kong. Remember to like us on Facebook, Follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ilya Soman today. So Ilya, I think uh, the first part of our conversation was actually a great backdrop for uh, the next part of my notes here, some things I want to ask you. Ultimately, I'd like you to address a little further some people's objections to enabling people to move all kinds of foot voting, uh, all kinds of objections against foot voting, I should say. Um, but before I jump into some specific ones I'd like to throw at you, um, it seems, and, and you touched on this uh, before the break, uh, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that ultimately your personal position is that the the, the case for, uh, for uh, foot voting and freedom of movement doesn't seem to be something that people need to make. That That is to say, what I'm getting from you is that it seems like the default assumption is that people should be able to move around freely and do what they got to do. And if there is a case to be made for restricting it, it needs to be made strongly. It can't just be something that people say, yeah, we shouldn't have that. So I believe that there should be a presumption, a very strong presumption in favor of freedom of movement, both domestically and internationally. I do try to make the case for that presumption. I'm not simply saying, well, because I believe there should be a presumption, that means it must be true. Uh, I make the argument uh, at some length in the book, I've already touched on some of the reasons, but ultimately it comes down to both that it's an important mechanism of political freedom. If you believe people should have political freedom, then foot voting should be a large part of it because it has important advantages over ballot box voting. In addition, uh, it's a type of freedom in and of itself, which most people readily recognize in the case of internal freedom of movement. Uh, but that the argument also applies to international as well. Uh, and uh, obviously, I recognize that there are various arguments to say that governments have just an inherent right to exclude people. And in the book, I criticize those arguments at length. I also criticize 
uh, various standard arguments which say that we should restrict freedom of movement not because there's an inherent right to do so, but because otherwise there would be bad consequences such as the spread of harmful cultural values, or we already mentioned the spread of diseases. Uh, there's also uh, the danger of overburdening the welfare state and other arguments that, of, of that kind that people advance. And while I don't dismiss these consequentialist arguments entirely, I do say that uh, there's some presumption against them and that before we uh, use them as justifications for restricting freedom of movement, we should make sure first that there really is a great evil that is being prevented by the restriction, and second, that there isn't a less coercive uh, and more humane way to uh, prevent it. Uh, and finally, I would also ask, given that uh, voting and migration generate enormous new wealth, maybe in some cases where there really is a negative side effect, maybe we can tap that extra wealth to mitigate it, as opposed to uh, killing the goose that creates the golden eggs by uh, preventing the migration in the first place. Right. Yeah. And I actually had that note today, too, if we did touch on it. And I'm glad you did. It's, it's funny. I, I like how Leslie later on in the book, and this is what you just outlined, you, you do provide a framework for going about thinking to solutions to a proposed problem of, of migration. And I like the first one. It just says, first, let, let's ask whether the supposed problem is actually real first. I just stopped and laughed at that because it's such an obvious point, but it's true, right? It's If someone comes to us and says, here's a problem with such and such type of foot voting or, or free, freedom of movement, it's it's let's actually deeply look into the, the facts and see if it indeed is actually causing the problem people are saying it does. Yeah, I, I think that's true for a lot of public policy issues that come up where it may turn, it may turn up, uh, turn out that either there isn't much of a problem, or at least the problem is much smaller than people say it is. Okay, so let, let's address a few claims people make against, uh, you know, the, the freedom to vote with your feet. Again, as I mentioned sort of early in our chat, obviously, uh, everyone listening, we're not going to address everything that Ilya covers in his book. So definitely go out and, and get that book and, and read further. So we'll just touch on a few here. So if, if we and you do this in your book, too, if we group some of these arguments under the, what we could call people's group right to exclude argument, uh, one argument you, you often hear from people is is pretty much the right to self-determination. And you can take a, you can give us a quick tour of this argument and provide your counter argument. But ultimately, I guess, to kick us off, this is sort of the idea people have that, you know, we're a certain people, I'm just going to say for fun now, let's say Ontarians, uh, we have a right to determine what Ontarians do. So we don't want those people from Alberta coming into Ontario, and for a variety of reasons, messing up our, our way of life or, wh or whatever we want to determine. So is that pretty much the, the gist of the argument, number one? And number two, what do you say to that argument? So there are several standard arguments which say that governments have a right to exclude people and they don't necessarily have to have any particular consequentialist reasoning to say we just don't want these people. One argument, a very common one, is one you just mentioned, uh, a theory of group self-determination that a particular country or in this case a particular province perhaps is the property of a particular ethnic or racial or cultural group uh, like uh, I think Ontarians might be a little bit of a flippant example, but less <laughs> flippant is the argument that the uh, French Canadians are the cultural or ethnic group that truly owns the province of Quebec, and therefore they should have a right to decide who right. lives there. Uh, and I have uh, a couple of responses to this. One is, uh, if you look at the history of virtually every major nation, it is not the case that you can uh, find a point where there's just one group there that's homogenous and that you know, owns the area. Rather, there's always lots of uh, groups, uh, and it's not at all clear on what basis one particular racial or cultural group can say, well, you know, we're the true French people and France is only for us. Uh, secondly, 
even within people among a particular group, the, that, that group is almost never completely culturally homogenous and like there's disagreement. So it's not clear why within that group you should be able to privilege those people who want to exclude over those people who don't. And third, uh, to the extent that these classifications are generally based on ancestry, which they almost always are, uh, then you run into the same problems that you run into with justifications for other kinds of racial and ethnic discrimination uh, that in contexts other than migration, most people, at least most people in liberal democracies would say it's wrong to say people who are descended from blacks as opposed to whites or French as opposed to English uh, or what have you, that those people should have special rights solely by virtue of who their parents were, who their ancestors were. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the same point should apply to international migration uh, and internal migration as well. Where you're allowed to live and how much freedom you should have should not be determined based on your choice of parents. Uh, now, I grant that in theory, uh, you can say, well, we're not going to do this based on parentage. We're just going to do that based on your cultural identity. So even if your parents were not French, uh, if you live the French culture or the French life, you speak French, uh, you eat the same kind of food, you, you have the same customs and so forth, you can be counted as French. Uh, there, however, I think you get into some of the same problems uh, that arise with government control of culture generally, uh, that if you take the view that culture should be able to exclude people in order to prevent cultural change, then I think it also follows that the government should be able to suppress internal cultural change. After all, often cultures change enormously through internal dynamics and cultural conservatives are unhappy about that. But most liberal Democrats would not say, well, the government should be able to suppress, for instance, new music or new customs or what have you, because the older generation or some members of it uh, don't like it. Uh, what we say is that there should be a free a cultural marketplace or marketplace of ideas. And if you believe that your culture is the best, uh, then, you know, persuade people to adopt it. Uh, and often actually, you know, there are, there is uh, success in that. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that if you allow migrants the chance to integrate into the job market and society, generally, they do in fact adopt many of the cultural traits of, uh, modern liberal democracies that they that they migrate to and moving away from the self-determination argument another thing that uh, people put forward which is uh, the sovereignty argument and ultimately this is comes down to the idea that excluding people is intrinsic to sovereignty as a state sometimes we hear this i think summed up when people say a state really isn't a state if it can't exclude people if it doesn't have strong borders that prevent people from moving across it and things like that one thing i liked um and again maybe maybe you'll tackle it this first or later but i at least want to touch on the fact that it's interesting that the book notes that even if we abolished all immigration restrictions tomorrow that doesn't necessarily mean that borders wouldn't exist and, and wouldn't have functions that, that they aren't necessarily you know t tied in tandem like that for the first hundred years of american history and also for much of canadian history the government the, the national government imposed almost no restrictions in international migration yet borders still played a role obviously they delimited uh the sphere of the government's authority and also the sphere of other government's authority and serve various other functions as well like collecting tariffs on goods which i'm not a fan of but the U.S. and Canadian governments did do lots of that even before there were migration restrictions. Uh, I would add also that this sovereignty argument, uh, I think, is problematic at other kinds of levels. You can say, well, under current understandings of international law and sovereignty, the right to exclude 
is one of them. But of course, historically, lots of things have been understood to be part of a ruler's sovereignty. For instance, for most of world history, it was understood that the ruler, part of the sovereignty that he had was that he had the right to suppress opposition speech if he wanted to. He also had the right to have an official religion and often persecute other religions. This was a well understood and widely accepted aspect of sovereignty for many centuries. Uh, and today we say it doesn't matter that it was understood to be that way. What matters is that it was unjust and wrong, and therefore it's a power that government shouldn't have, or at least should only be able to exercise in extreme cases. And I would say the same thing about the power to restrict freedom of movement. The fact that governments understand it to be a power they should have doesn't mean that they're right about that any more than the governments that believe that they had a right to repress religion or speech were right about that. Uh, instead of asking what's an attribute of sovereignty, what we should be asking is what sorts of powers are justified uh, for government to have. And if it turns out the government has powers which are not justified, those powers should be abolished or at least pared back, uh, just as over time uh, liberal democracies pared back the power to censor speech, to have an official religion. Uh, repress other speech and religion and so forth. So I would say the same thing about the power to restrict migration. The fact that rulers have arrogated this power to themselves and you know they use big words like sovereignty to justify their having the power doesn't mean that what they're doing is actually justified. Moving away from what are ultimately arguments from the perspective of a, a group's right to exclude another group or even individuals, often people make uh, counter arguments to the freedom of movement and, and foot voting from sort of a, an individual rights perspective. That is to say that the, the right is an individual that I ultimately have to exclude other people. And this is the classic house analogy, right? You know, people throw this around. You wouldn't take the doors off your house and let people in. So why would you let people move freely across borders or into whatever neighborhoods they want? We should have more control of this, et cetera. So I'll just throw that to you. Again, uh, first of all, let me know if I've uh, if I've accidentally painted too much of a flippant picture of the house analogy. Number one and number two, let's hear your your, your counter argument to that. Many people, particularly in the U.S., make the sort of the so called house analogy, where they say, "Well, in my house, I have the right to keep people out, uh, and I don't necessarily have to have a good reason. It's enough to say, well, I just don't like this particular person. I don't want them in my house.' Or alternatively, another similar analogy just made is that of a private club. Uh, I it may be dangerous to say this on a uh, uh, Canadian podcast, but I'm a Boston Bruins fan, so I could have a club that's limited to the Boston Bruins fans and fans of other teams, the Maple Leafs, the Canadians, and so forth. Uh, they're not allowed in the club, and you know most people would say the members of the Bruins fan club have a right to exclude fans of other teams. So then you could say similarly, the United States or Canada is a kind of club, and the current members have a right to exclude. Or alternatively, you could say the U.S. or Canada is like a house, and the current owners of the house, the government, uh, can have the right to exclude people. And they don't necessarily have to have a good reason. It's enough. They just don't want these particular people in there. Uh, and I think there are many problems with the house and, that and club analogy. I'll just mention a couple. Uh, one is that if you take seriously the analogy between a house and a national government, it has horrible illiberal implications, not just for migration, but uh, for uh, internal freedom as well. Uh, for instance, in my house, I can establish a rule that only the religions that I like can be practiced. Uh, I can throw people out if they engage in speech that I don't like. Similarly with a club, if people take the view that 
uh, you know, the Maple Leafs are the best team, uh, then, you know, I can keep them out of my uh, Boston Bruins club. So if we believe that a government is like a club or like a homeowner, then it would have the power to censor and repress uh, internally as well as uh, to exclude migrants. Uh, and this gets to the, the other difference, which is that uh, the reason, one of the reason, reasons why we are willing to let the Boston Bruins club exclude fans of other teams, even if those other teams are not actually inherently worse in some moral sense, is that the Bruins club is a voluntary club. On the other hand, governments, at least as they exist in the real world, are essentially mandatory clubs. They say anybody who's in this territory must obey all of the government's laws, regardless of whether they meaningfully consented uh, in any way. Uh, and to my mind, a mandatory club that controls a vast territory should not be allowed to have anything like the same kinds of powers that a voluntary club might be permitted to have. Finally, I would add that for people who are not libertarians, which is the vast majority of the population, when we're looking at large private sector organizations like commercial firms and so forth, we often do have anti-discrimination laws, which among other things forbid discrimination based on race or sex other kinds of uh, things of this sort. We don't impose that on owners of individual private homes. We do impose that on large private organizations. If you believe that such restrictions are justified for large private organizations, then they should be justified for governments as well. And of course, as we touched on earlier, to the extent that immigration restrictions are often based on where you were born or who your parents are, they're actually very similar to racial and ethnic restrictions or racial and ethnic discrimination, which also is based on your parentage or ancestry. So in the classic case, they say, well, we, we refuse to hire blacks, for example. Why? Because they have the wrong ancestry and parentage. Uh, and similarly, we say we restrict people's freedom of movement because they were born south of the Rio Grande River as opposed to north of it, even though uh, that's no more. That's just as morally arbitrary a distinction as whether you were born to black parents as opposed to uh, white ones. Again, if you believe that there should be few or no anti-discrimination restrictions in the private sector, uh, then you know, this argument might not impress you. Uh, but then you also probably believe that government should be strictly limited in their powers and therefore should be unwilling to embrace the house and club analogy under which governments would have virtually unlimited power to regulate and restrict anybody who is within their jurisdiction. And finally, another argument that's brought up by people that they say as individuals, they have a right to exclude others. Uh, because they have a right to avoid unwanted political obligations. I guess this here's the idea that people try to step into more of a consequentialist discussion, say, okay, I, I'm not anti-immigration, I'm not racist, I'm not this, I'm not that, but ultimately, if X, Y, or Z group comes here, here's all the bad things that they'll do. They're going to burden our political system. There's outsiders are going to start going to public schools and, and, and be, you know, be wasting tax dollars, thing, things like that. Uh, what do you say to this line of thinking? So I think what you just outlined is two different lines of thinking. One is sort of a very common one with Shay, it's not necessarily that I believe there should be a right to exclude for any reason, but that there's a specific bad consequence that could happen. Like, uh, for instance, people will, migrants will come in and overburden the welfare state. Uh, there will be much higher taxation for natives, uh, or either that or the welfare state will just collapse. Uh, or alternatively, there might be other bad consequences. They might come in, they'll vote for really bad politicians. Uh, those politicians will get into power and so forth. Uh, and the three-part framework that we talked about earlier, 
is, I think, important to apply here. The first question is, is how bad is this effect really? It turns out that in the U.S. and actually in Canada as well, uh, the evidence suggests that increasing migration does not increase the size of the welfare state uh, on a per capita basis. The per capita welfare spending does not increase as a result. Uh, uh, but let's say that's not true. A second question to ask is, can we mitigate this in a way that uh, does not, uh, in a way that's more humane and less coercive than uh, excluding migrants in the first place? And there are many ways to mitigate, for instance, we might make immigrants ineligible for certain types of welfare benefits, which is already true for many welfare benefits in the U.S. and Canada and other Western nations. Uh, we could also adopt other policies, such as saying you may be ineligible until you've paid in a certain amount in taxes. There are a lot of different variations on this idea, which I discuss uh, in the book. Uh, and finally, uh, if the problem is real and it's not easy to mitigate, you can still ask, why not tap the uh, vast new wealth that migration creates to mitigate the problem? Uh, so, uh, for example, you could say that uh, uh, the you could impose, if you wanted to, surtaxes on immigrants' wages and use that to finance the welfare state. I don't advocate this as a first best measure, but it's better than excluding the migrants entirely. If you move to a country where you have to pay, say, a 10% higher tax rate than otherwise, but your income is two or three times as large as it would have been uh, in your country of origin, and that's a win-win for both sides. Uh, that you know, the, the migrant is still much wealthier than before, uh, but the uh, the receiving country gets the extra tax revenue and also benefits from the uh, migrants' productivity. And I have similar points to make, and I make them at length in the book, about other standard objections like the idea that migrants will vote for bad uh, governments or policies, the idea that they would spread harmful cultural values, the idea that they increase crime uh, and so forth or increase terrorism to each of these points. Often it's just the case that the problem either is non-existent or much smaller than people claim. Uh, uh, where it does exist, there are what I call in the book keyhole solutions, that is mechanisms of mitigating the problem other than by excluding migrants. And finally, uh, sometimes there are mechanisms where we can tap the wealth that migration creates to uh, offset any uh, residual negative side effects. And also towards the end of the book, you ultimately talk about how constitutions and rules and regulations can be designed in ways that maximize the potential for foot voting and the positive effects it has, and of course, minimize the downsides naturally. Um, you know, of, of course, as I've said before, we're not going to just have you read the whole book here, but if you'd like to throw a few key points our way based on that or any of the highlights, I would more than happy to hear that now. So, so how can we design constitution and rules and regulation to maximize the potential of foot voting? Yeah, so that there are several different things that, uh, that are particularly important. One is ensuring both internal and international freedom of movement. Uh, most liberal democratic constitutions do in fact protect internal freedom of movement, international much less so. Uh, also protecting various individual rights that enable more private sector foot voting, uh, freedom of speech, religion, but also rights of private property and economic liberty and the like. Uh, all those facilitate internal foot voting in addition, I think often to having other kinds of good effects. Uh, decentralization of power in federal systems uh, by constitutional mechanisms also facilitates foot voting by giving people more options. In Canada and in some other countries, uh, provinces or, or states also often are allowed to sponsor migrants 
uh, of their own accord internationally. And while that's to my mind is not as good as simply having a strong presumption of freedom of movement, it is better than uh, simply allowing governments to uh, national government to exclude as they see fit without uh, you know regional governments being able to get uh, you know get exemptions from that or get around that. Uh, there are lots of other things as well, but those are some of the highlights. And our time is winding down a little bit here. I have a, cu- a few last questions before we wrap up. So ultimately, a, a lot of people say to, to this line of thinking, your line of thinking, that you know, if, if all of this voting with your feet is great, uh, and you know, and we should allow people to move around. Some people think that the logical extension of all of the discussion we're having today actually is basically that you know, international law and you know, something like, for instance, a one-world government would be a good thing. If people should just be able to freely move around all they want, what's the point of countries? What's the point of different governments? But but it but it turns out uh, you actually think that everything we're talking about today, as a matter of fact, provides a foundation for a good argument against this type of extreme idea some people might have as a good or bad thing. So why don't we get into that a bit? I have a chapter in the book on international law and global governance. I do advocate reforming international law such as to enable more free migration, for example, expanding the categories of refugees that governments are not allowed to deport. Uh, On the other hand, however, I think if you care about foot voting, that's an argument against world government, because at least until we have space colonies or the like, uh, if you have a government that controls the entire world, uh, then that's a government that you cannot vote with your feet against. And that's bad, both from the standpoint of political freedom, but also it creates risks in that if that government would become tyrannical or oppressive or just adopt lots of really bad policies, uh, there would be no exit option against that government. Uh, and in the nightmare scenario, in the worst possible case, it could be an authoritarian or even a totalitarian state, which because it encompasses the whole world would be very difficult uh, to oppose or get rid of. So I'm not saying this definitively proves that we shouldn't have a world government. Uh, maybe if you think the world government is the only way to achieve some great good, uh, like controlling climate change or something, uh, then you might still be willing to take the risk. But the more you care about foot voting, uh, the more you should have at least a presumption against world government. And, and my final question before we wrap up, uh, you're, you're sitting here today. I think you're in the United States, right? Uh, you, you actually have a personal story about, about foot voting. Why don't you take a couple minutes and explain that? I was born in the Soviet Union, and my parents made the decision uh, to leave there for for the U.S. in the late 1970s because, of course, the Soviet Union had a horrible, oppressive communist government, and the U.S., for all its flaws, is vastly better. Uh, And obviously, if I were still in Russia, uh, I would be much poorer and less free than I currently am and much less productive, I think, as well. And what happened with me and my parents is just a tiny example of the broader phenomenon that people can completely transform their lives, become freer, happier, more productive. And I think in most cases of most more benefit to the, to the society as well, in addition to themselves, if they're allowed to freely vote with their feet. Uh, so my case is just a very small example uh, of this much broader dynamic. And I hope more people uh, around the world can have those kinds of opportunities that I was lucky enough to have that the difference between uh, my life uh, now and that of uh, my contemporaries who ended up having to stay in Russia because they couldn't leave. Uh, it, it's not a difference based on any merit of mine. It's a difference based on uh, the opportunity to vote with your feet that my parents were able to have, but all too many other in, in people in similar situations uh, were not. 
So Ilya, it is time to wrap up. Our time has wound down. So we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So every episode I ask our guest, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether you can vote with your feet and what the impacts of that are? If we could sum it up. One takeaway is that foot voting has many important advantages over ballot box voting. It's a more meaningful choice and a better informed choice. Second is that expanding opportunities for foot voting can massively increase both freedom and economic and other kinds of well-being, particularly for many of the poorest and most oppressed people in the world, both the poorest and worst off people in already advanced societies like the U.S. and Canada, but also even more so people living in far worse places. Uh, And third is that while I do not claim that foot voting has no downsides, I think in the vast majority of instances, there are ways to address those downsides without actually restricting people's freedom of movement. And we should take a serious look at those other ways before we uh, restrict the movement. One final point I would make is that while I believe in very broad rights of freedom of movement, and I'm you know pretty radical in what I ultimately advocate, both internally and internationally, there's a lot of incremental improvements we can make to expand foot voting opportunities. So even if the takeaway from my book is not that there should be a general presumption of freedom of movement, but that Canada or the U.S. should increase the number of immigrants permitted to come in by, say, 5 or 10 percent, that's still many thousands of people of vastly greater freedom uh, and vastly greater opportunity than they would have otherwise. If we break down barriers to internal freedom of movement and reduce them, say, those by 5 or 10 percent, that's also a big gain. Uh, so there's both a long-term sort of a more sweeping idea here, but there's also lots of ideas for incremental improvement, uh, which can be implemented relatively quickly, if only the political will were there. Ilya Solman, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you very much for having me. Great questions. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.